Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello everyone, I'm Mila Nakiran and I'm a Senior Programme Manager in the Education team here at the RSA. It's my great pleasure to welcome you all here to today's event. I'm delighted to be joined by author, broadcaster and educator Geoffrey Boache. Geoffrey taught English to secondary school students for 15 years and now draws on his experience and expertise to provide training for schools, universities and businesses on race, identity, masculinity and education. Jeffrey's published books include Hold Tight, Black Masculinity, Millennials and the Meaning of Grime, Black Listed, Black British Culture Explored, and Musical Truth, a musical history of modern Black Britain in 28 songs. His new book, I Heard What You Said, joins that list today and will be the subject of this conversation. Welcome, Jeffrey, and thank you for joining today. Oh, no, thank you. And thank you for that little rundown of my CV. It's always exciting to hear your titles, your long book titles <laughs> read, out, read out to you. Really good to be here. Uh, before we get started, I just wanted to welcome everyone watching to join the conversation in the YouTube live chat or via the hashtag RSA Education on Twitter. I heard what you said draws on Jeffrey's own experiences as a teacher through a series of encounters and often quite shocking things that people have said to him. It brings into sharp focus the fact that racism is rife and pervades our entire education system. As a South Londoner and ex-teacher myself, it spoke to many of my own experiences in the classroom, causing me to reflect on my own teaching practice and some of the internal struggles that non-white teachers and students experience in a system that is dominated by whiteness. It was inspirational to read how you, Jeffrey, navigated these challenges and have taken it upon yourself to shoulder many of the burdens of becoming a truly anti-racist educator. The book also speaks to work currently taking place within the RSA. Our research has shown that pupils from certain ethnic minority backgrounds are disproportionately excluded from school, and this is something explored throughout the book particularly the alarming number of black boys that are excluded from mainstream education. We believe this to be a social justice issue and through our Preventing School Exclusions project are researching how greater multi-agency collaboration might support local education systems to be more inclusive. Another area of our work that speaks to the book is around social action and the role that it plays within education. Our recent project, Social Action in Primary Schools, has highlighted the benefits of social action in schools and our next project in this area the third benefit will examine the potential benefit to teachers i heard what you said argues that teaching students about social justice issues and activism is imperative in dismantling systemic racism but before we discuss these points further i'd like to start by asking you jeffrey to talk us through your career journey relationship with education and how that influenced the development of the book. Wow. All right. A nice um, uh, quick one to start with then. Um, yeah, I suppose I, I'm i a product of the great British education system. You know, I'm a success story. My parents are from Ghana and West Africa. They came over in the 70s. I was born here, so I'm fully British, but I'm of the empire. You know, I've got the colony in my, in my DNA. So for a lot of immigrant communities, it's the same story. It's kind of do well, do the best you can in the system that you've been introduced to, get as many qualifications on the way out and then prosper in a capital C career that is recognized by 
by by the wider community you know like become a lawyer become a doctor become whatever so that was always the plan to go to university and get a degree and I did that I always loved English so I just pursued that which was quite fortunate because gave me a very clear path even though I didn't know what I wanted to be after university I probably could have gone into academia you know like I I got a first I'm not bragging it is what it is you know um and I was a candidate to do a master's and PhD and all that but I needed to make money so um, I just took myself into the nearest job that would use the English skills. And that wasn't teaching. That was like journalism, small J, like industry stuff. But then 2007, I'd always loved working with people. I love working with young people. I do like youth clubs and stuff like that. I've got some of those blue Peter presenter vibes. So it was always a no brainer to end up in education. And that took me to teaching. And I worked in a few schools, not that many. Um, worked in West London for a while, school, then I went to East London. Um, and that was a whole new vista because I worked with communities I'd never spent any time with. You know, I, I worked at a school with a very strong Muslim population and I never actually taught any Muslim children up to that point. So that was an eye opener. And along the way, you're just finding out about who you are as a teacher. And I think that that's the thing, that's the journey that I didn't realize I was on. Teaching is really, it's not just been about getting kids through the exam hoops. It's been also about me working out how I see the world and what my personal requisites are for actualizing my own talents. And that's been a real gift actually. Um, and that kind of took me further and further and further into teaching, but I stayed in the classroom. I stayed in the classroom. I've always been a classroom-based teacher. I never got into management um, really. And yeah, and along the way I've always been writing, but I'm sure we could talk about it later. So that's a little potted history of of, of how I navigated the education system slalom. What do you reckon? Is that enough? <laughs> That's great. It's really interesting to hear how teaching was able to take you on that journey in a really positive way. Um, in the book, you highlight how black students can often be labeled as challenging and are excluded at a disproportionate rate compared to their white peers, uh, which is also what our research in this area has shown. Yeah. Um, what consequences does this have on students and what does this reveal about the faults of our education system? Yeah, I mean, you have to pan out and look at the, look at the widest possible perspective because none of these things are actually that surprising when you consider society within the context of white supremacy, which kind of came to a head in the sort of 1600s, you know, when race as a concept started popping off alongside exploitation of communities across the globe for reasons of economics you know that's that's what we're talking about here and it sounds a bit kind of like heavy heavy-handed to start talking about 600 years of race history but you have to understand the content because that's the gravity of the situation it affects everything it affects our structures our societies our ideologies and it's like oxygen it's become so normalized so pervasive we breathe it and we don't understand that we're breathing it that's like asking a fish to consider what water is. It's like, well, we don't know that we're in it. So that racism means that the exclusion of racially marginalized groups as identified and created hundreds of years ago is part of our society, you know? And so to even see it is difficult, let alone to tackle it. So we're doing the impossible here. We're like trying to turn off gravity. Um, the upshot for marginalized communities is sadly predictable it's obscurity where they're just not seen because there's not a natural place for these communities 
in the mainstream. It's annihilation, whereby their experiences, their lived experiences can be so negative, you know, discriminated against, prejudiced against, not having the opportunities that um, the socially empowered groups have to the extent where they just disappear, you know, and no one notices because they're marginalized in the first place. And then the real tragedy is the, is the loss of potential, just the waste of human potential. And from any, for anyone that works with, with kids, anyone in e education, that is something which is too valuable to lose. Just the sense that people, young people, communities, you can offer so much, do not have that opportunity. It's taken away from them because they find themselves not only marginalized, but even worse, excluded. Or as I've said, it's a strong word, but I'm gonna stand by it, annihilated by the structures around them. So that's, that's how it plays out. And unfortunately, the statistics keep proving it year in, year out, you know? It's, yeah, it's really alarming, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to ask, it's uh, from my own experience, I know that it's exhausting enough being a teacher alone, um, let alone being an excellent one. Uh, but what are the added burdens and responsibilities that non-white teachers have to shoulder within the current education system? And how does the system need to adapt to alleviate that stress? Um, and I guess, how, how do you look after yourself? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I'm fortunate in that I'm energized by people, right? I'm actually energized by the by the energy and the problems and the and the messiness of the lives of other people, which means that a school is a great place for me because it's full of people. People don't get it. Like schools are exhausting because it's just human interaction in lots of different ways all the time. And that if you don't like people, it's going to give you a constant headache and you can't exist there. So but that energizes me. So I'm also interested in the experiences of other people. And I feel like that has allowed me to somehow kind of um, put my energies towards kind of looking at others and taking the spotlight off myself because the marginalized experience, as you say, it can be traumatic just existing as someone who is marginalized and not recognized as such by the mainstream because the specifics of your narrative and the specifics of the community that you're part of they're just not folded in to the to the mainstream narrative so no one even kind of factors in well how might you feel about this or is the curriculum speaking to you in a particular way you know or are there problems that affect you that aren't affecting the white dominant mainstream you know um, that need to be thought about. So you're carrying extra, extra kind of burden and extra work. And then you're also having to manage sideways and manage upwards because you're around people that aren't aware of those things because it's been normalized. That can be exhausting, you know? There are people that wake up every day that don't have to think about homophobia, racism, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, classism, ableism, because they're censored in those ways. You know, I don't have to wake up and worry about sexism because I've been called male and I've got male privilege. But that does worry me because sexism is a problem for all of us. But you can see how if it doesn't affect you, it almost means that you're sort of exempt from having to worry about it. So anyone who's marginalized in any way has got all of that extra emotional and social um, work to do just to get through 
society. Um, if you're like me, you turn it into work. I don't know if that's healthy or not. I, you know, I'll let you, you can tell me all about me. You know, like, like is, is this a healthy way to get through life? Um, but I think that it's something which basic empathy says that we definitely need to be aware of it for everyone because everyone's carrying different burdens and everyone's got different cuts on their fingers and racism is a biggie, you know. Absolutely. And, you know, you've been able to really thrive in, in that, that situation and, and it's easy to see why, why many haven't. And it would be really interesting to see the education system view racism as a trauma that, that people who aren't white have to endure. Um, but you also mentioned the curriculum there, and I think it's important to talk about the curriculum. Um, our Citizens of Now report that recently came out has shown that unfortunately many students are missing out on the benefits of youth social action. Mm. Um, and as you highlight in the book, social activism is, is an area that's currently missing from our curriculum and is perhaps uh, an important area that it could benefit from. So why do you think it's missing? Uh, and what are the benefits of teaching this in school? Uh, and are there any other areas in which our curriculum is lacking? Yeah, listen, social justice is a concept. I've done my research on this. It goes back to the 19th century. Of all the big conversations that we're having, that's one of the oldest, right? And when you think about it goes back to the 19th century, that's really telling because that's a time when in this part of the world, in the West, you had industrialization kicking off. You had countries forming empires. So suddenly, there was a need for social inequality because that's how countries get on. You know, you exploit people, you know, you take from places, you colonize, you, you have workers at different levels. So the concept of needing justice in society became really sharp in the West, um, particularly in this country around that time. So boom, social justice becomes an issue, right? So your curriculum has to have a position that factors that in because there is social injustice built into society. And what I think um, this country does um, very badly is reflect on the reality of its own history, because a lot of the truths of what has gone on in the British Empire and since the kind of fall of the empire, you know, a lot of that stuff is basically like negative, you know, and it's not me trying to drag anyone. I'm not trying to drag historical figures. But what I am saying is that there are unpalatable truths. There have been injustices that have been enacted out by governments systematically and by institutions. And to not address them in the teaching of any curriculum, and it's not just history and English and like narrative subjects, it's every subject has got a narrative. You know, who are the heroes? Who are the heroines? Where is the, um, where are the, where are the big thoughts coming from? You know, who has power in every subject? Where's it going? You need to be thinking hard about balancing the seesaws that have been historically imbalanced. So this is why I think that the curriculum needs to have an argument. What does it believe to be true and good in terms of social justice? Individual people need to shape their own arguments. But I can tell you what I believe to be true about social justice. A lot of people can, but a lot of people can't because they haven't been invited to interrogate it. So I feel as though the curriculum needs to be a place that fosters a spirit of interrogating the accepted truths and norms and the status quo, seeking to discover what actually happened with a view 
to putting your best foot forward in a deliberate and benevolent direction of can we make things better and fairer for all the reasons that I've outlined earlier. Um, and if you don't do that in the curriculum, then the same cycle repeats and you get to 2022 and you're still talking about racism. Like, do you have an idea how mad that is? Like, we are the most advanced we've ever been. I'm talking to you right now through a, through a computer, like, and we're still using terms like black and white to talk about people. This is madness to me. So I feel like school, schools in particular need to get into that really early so we can start to take better steps forward in a better direction. Absolutely. And, and you talked about teaching social injustice and and that can be quite heavy and that can be really difficult for students and there are lots of instances in your book where there are those eye-opening moments for students mm. when th they realize these things that have been kept from them um, but but is there also the space that we we need to create for for celebrating success stories as well that is perhaps lacking 100 percent. i think there are three strands that need to be addressed simultaneously when you're looking at any marginalized experience, right? The, people listening now, this is what you came for, so pay attention, right? The first, as you've just said, is celebration. Any marginalized group, any community actually, if you get marginalized, has got something culturally that needs to be celebrated, right? And actually, when you, when you deep it, most marginalized um, groups in this context, you know, Great Britain, some of their cultures have been appreciated some have been appropriated some have been fetishized but there's some have been like celebrated you know like people know a bit about indian culture a little bit about caribbean culture a little bit about chinese culture because we can celebrate some of these things but then alongside that celebration you need to address histories of resistance and oppression because marginalized groups and you can pick any marginalized group has a history of oppression and there has been resistance to that oppression. So there are figures, key figures that have fought the fight. Like people think that anti-racism started in 2020. Like, like are, you, are you crazy? This is, there's a legacy of this, um, trying to tackle anti-black racism. There's a legacy of trying to tackle homophobia. There's a legacy of tackling sexism and so on and so forth. And then the final thing is the recognition of trauma. Now, my, my whole thing as a teacher is, you know, um, I, I don't want to patronize anyone. Like the worst you can do is patronize young people um, because you essentially end up reiterating whatever truths have been fed to them without kind of giving them the space to go forward. So I never patronize anyone. If there's been trauma, you have to see it and recognize it. So I will talk about Stephen Lawrence in every book that I write. I will talk about that. That's a traumatic experience, not just for, um, the Lawrence family and for the wider black community, but for the country, it's a scar. Um, but you need to talk about these traumatic experiences so you recognize the lived experience of the people that were affected. And if you don't do those three things, the celebration, addressing uh, um, histories of oppression and resistance and the recognition of trauma, then a marginalized community would actually lean away from inclusion, you know, because why would you throw yourself into a mainstream that doesn't see you and doesn't seek to see you and be in conversation with you. It's just a risky situation to be in. So yeah, celebration 100% along with those other two that I've, that, that I've just talked about. Absolutely, I think your point about recognizing racial trauma as a trauma is, is so important. Um, and also I, I think I just wanted to highlight how much 
in your book, you, you really come across as a, a teacher who believes in student agency and centers students' experience uh, within all of your, your teaching practices and, and that being really important within education to listen to students' needs and, and adapting teaching practice to meet those needs. Um, but I wanted to go back to what you were saying about this idea of cultural appreciation and appropriation. Mm. Um, in the book, you, you highlight the interest and fascination with black culture among young people of all ethnicities, whether it be drill or grime or street culture, um, but that without a proper education and exploration of these cultures, there's a real risk that that appreciation can fall prey to racist stereotyping. So I wonder how, how do you think education can take that into account and be of benefit to all students? Like where else do you get people, captive audience for like five years without their phones, able to just sit and learn stuff? Like school is such a special time, a special place for the adolescent person. And the structuring of what they learn, if you link it to their context, it becomes not just like important, but exciting, right? Because teenagers invented in 1950s, that concept, the teenager, they are gonna consume what is exciting and what is illicit because you haven't got a prefrontal cortex when you're a teenager. You literally can't do long-term decision-making, which is why you run out and impress your friends rather than sit down and revise and think about your mortgage in, in 20 years time. So you're grabbing things that are illicit and culturally, most of the things that are most exciting are kind of illicit. And in terms of the 20th century, that's been black culture because it's on the edges. Like rock and roll scared the hell out of white America, which is why white teenagers loved it. And that happened again with hip hop and happened again with disco. It happened again with, you know, grime and drill. And so, and this is just music, you know, you get to fashion and everything else. So teenagers are gonna find the stuff which is exciting. But what we can do is give them a context to understand it so they know where it's coming from. So, you know, where does rock and roll come from? If you're talking to a teenager in the 1950s, it might be helpful to tell them about Big Mama Thornton, to, to tell them about the blues, to tell them about slave songs. I'm not black, I'm not a black American, but I know how important those narratives are to understand America as a whole. Come to this country, whatever is exciting and interesting, what's been commodified, because remember, product, culture gets sold as product. We can't get away from that. You know, black culture gets commodified all the time. It happened in the nineties with, um, with a lot of Asian culture, you know, it became a commodity. There were films and books and fashions that were kind of commodifying Asian culture. But you have to then talk about what happened before that, you know, where does this come from? What are the power paradigms and the relationships historically? How did we get here? And when you do that, it's really empowering. It allows people to understand where they are placing themselves and, and how we got to where we are, which means that going forward, their steps are more deliberate. And I think that's the main thing. You want intention because I'm an optimist. I'm a believer in people. I actually believe people are good. Call me naive if you want, I don't know, but I believe people are good. And I believe that with enough understanding and knowledge about what's happened, and a 360 understanding of how we got here, people will want to do the best thing. The problem is society does the exact opposite. It puts the blinkers on, you know, so simple truths aren't given to successive generations. So they don't see the problems that are holding us all back. 
you know. So yeah, loving the culture is a step into understanding the communities from which those cultures come from. Absolutely. And our recent work in learning about culture really looked to, to look at how the impact of teaching using arts and culture uh, can benefit students, um, particularly given the stresses that schools are under, uh, which are putting subjects in the arts at risk. Um, so given your history of interest in music, um, how important do you think creativity is for young people and their, their sense of identity, connection, their well-being? Oh man, the, the arts are central to not just the curriculum, but, but, but to the human spirit, you know, the arts, broadly speaking, any medium. Um, it's, where we, it's, it's where we connect in a way that transcends the divisions and distinctions that have been created by politics and economics. You know, that was a very articulate sentence, <laughs> but it is, it's, it's where we connect in a more profound way. Music speaks over generations. It speaks across cultures. You know, it germinates in very, very organic ways and ways that are authentic. I speak to students who have a genuine love of music that comes from communities that they have nothing to do with. You know, you can see it grow and spread. You know, um, I speak to, to, to young students of Caribbean descent who are learning Korean because they love K-pop, which is itself a manifestation of hip hop and traditional Korean styles with jazz influences. And they're just absorbing it all in a genuine way. They're not trying to play appropriation games. They just love it. So to not foster that love of the arts in schools is, um, is, is it's not just a missed opportunity, it's a crime because the arts are where, are where we truly understand ourselves, you know, stories, narratives, um, and actually having an artistic approach to the whole curriculum, I think is, I think that's the big win, you know? We talked about science, like science only started popping off when they realized they didn't understand anything. Before that, it was kind of a bit limited, but when they realized it was about questioning and working out the narratives of things, that's when it starts to open up. That's an artistic approach to understanding you know, um, rather than just mastery. So yeah, um, I feel like a focus on the arts is, is absolutely instrumental to, a, to the development of a rich curriculum. It feels like there are so many things that are obvious that we need to be doing differently. And your book is full of examples of, of how to do it, but clearly change isn't happening uh, as quickly as, you know, it needs to. Um, what, what is preventing education from, from getting to that point? Um, and perhaps what, what do educators and other change makers need to, to know to, to support all students, but particularly mm. non-white students to, to benefit from education in the way that they should be? Yeah, uh, fear, ignorance and control, man. Like fear of destabilizing the structures that we lean on. That's a scary thought. If you take a table and you take a leg off it, it's not a table anymore. It's going to fall apart. And society operates in that way. The structures need integrity in order to stand. So if you start messing about with the structure, it feels like um, annihilation of everything, right? And dismantling 
dismantling things, that's a word which is really misunderstood. The idea of dismantling society sounds like destroying society, right? Because you take something apart. But dismantling doesn't mean taking something apart. It actually means to unmantle. And to mantle is to cover. We are mantled, right? We don't know most of what's gone on because it's been deliberately held from us. And yet we rely on that mantling because it's in the structure of our society. So if I tackle masculinity, if I take masculinity out of myself, am I destroying myself? No, but society has constructed me in a way. Look at me, I'm a man, I've got a beard, I've got short hair, you know, I am strong, you know, all that nonsense, right? Masculinity is doing damage to um, boys and men across the, across the country, across the globe. You know, it's the big, the biggest killer of young men is suicide. So we have to dismantle masculinity. We have to unmantle it to see what it is and how it's causing problems. It's the same for racism. White supremacy is something we can reveal. It's in society. It plays out in the same way that, you know, toxic masculinity, in the same way that homophobia, all these things, they are built into society, but they're so ingrained that to remove them is to shake society. And it scares people. So fear is the biggest thing there. Then the ignorance that I talked about, it just means that if you don't know what you don't know, then you can't even look at it, let alone tackle it. And that's by design. I talk about stuff in, in I heard what you said that I didn't know until my 30s. I've told you, I got a first at university. I, I, I'm, I'm a successful product of the system. And I didn't know about Operation Legacy until my 30s you know, which is the deliberate obfuscation of the crimes of the British Empire in a series of actions to hide those crimes in the 1950s onwards. I didn't know that until my, you know, until I was a fully grown adult with a kid. So the ignorance is a real problem there. And then the need for control. I mean, teachers, bless them. It's all about needing to know everything. Sometimes the best thing you can say to a young person, I don't know, and I'm scared. That's powerful, you know, to say that to a young person, because not knowing is actually when you start to ask questions that can get you further. You know, I don't know how to go forward. Okay, so what do I need to know? And then you can start moving. So, yeah, fear, ignorance and the need for control are debilitating. And once you tackle those things, I think you can very rapidly get to a better place. I'm just saying. So... (laughs) I'm here telling the truth today you know (laughs) that's that's what we need and I agree I think that vulnerability that teachers need to show is so important but it it requires so much strength doesn't it um but I I wanted to ask you about something slightly different you you did the unthinkable a few years ago and left London and moved to Yorkshire yeah Um, and one of the really interesting things I enjoyed reading in your book was about the kind of differences in your experiences teaching in, in quite different environments um and I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that what's Yorkshire life like yeah definitely what's Yorkshire life like um it's not like London I mean I'm I'm now in such in such a sharp minority ethnically you know like the village I live in like zero black people you know zero non-white people There's, there's a few more you know but generally speaking I look around it's like yes I am in an ethnic minority um it meant that I feel like what what you just said earlier about vulnerability, um, it's so powerful because the fact that I am racialized as black in a world which is steeped in white supremacy, 
has forced me to embrace vulnerability because I wake up in a world where I'm forced to be vulnerable and I didn't choose that for myself. I'd happily just be me, right? But I'm vulnerable because, you know, black person, white world, okay? So I've had to learn how to, how to thrive with that vulnerability. And actually, vulnerability is good, you know? Um, vulnerability is human. Vulnerability is an essential part of having the resilience and bravery to attempt to thrive despite your surroundings. And I've been forced to cultivate that. And I think that many people who are marginalized in any way will probably say a similar thing. They're forced to embrace their vulnerability. You know, If you're gay in a homophobic world and it's a taboo to be gay and it was illegal to be gay, then being gay is a very, very risky act, just being you. And so you have to embrace that just to wake up and get through Tuesday. So coming to Yorkshire was like an exercise in vulnerability because I knew I was going to be walking into situations where I would be a proper minority. And it, and, and it happened. It's, it's in the book. You know, I end up at uh, um, schools where I'm the only black person, the only black adult in the whole school, like the only black adult in the whole school. And I've got to walk in there knowing that I'm the only black adult in the whole school. So um, in a weird sort of way, it's it's almost like road testing my own beliefs, road testing what I've learned so far about how to survive. And um, yeah, Yorkshire's, um, Yorkshire's, Yorkshire's been good to me because I'm a, I'm a proper Londoner. I think like I, I can live anywhere, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I've got that London arrogance. <laughs> Um, I think we've got time for one more question. So the book finishes by, by speaking about the urgent need for change within education. And you acknowledge that that destination um, of the journey might be unknown. Uh, but what do you think the key milestones on that journey need to be for the system to, to work towards where it should be? Yeah, um, really simply, it's, it's moments of um, recognition. I think that's really important when um, the experiences of individuals, of communities are actually recognized and seen. Um, and if you want to go a bit deeper, you know, recognition really means to recognize, to understand as new. So rather than accepting the given narratives that have taken us this far, it's starting to realize that there's another way of looking at it. There are other perspectives. And if we can decenter what's always been centered, and start to center other narratives, then it will become impossible to keep doing what we've always done. Um, will it happen in my lifetime? I don't know, because people were talking about this in the 60s and in the 30s, and we're still here. Um, so I would like to think it can happen in our lifetime, but the big milestone will be when people actually realize that there are other perspectives to see things from, and in the empathy kicks into gear where you can center everyone you know, and realise that you're not losing control by doing that. Jeffrey, it's we'll been see. so interesting and enlightening speaking to you. I wish we could carry on this conversation, but I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, and thank you to everyone who's tuned in to watch. If you'd like to learn more about everything we've discussed, Jeffrey's book is out today. You can order it from FOILS using the discount code FOILSRSA20 for 20% off. 
and there it is. <laughs> <laughs> to learn more about the work of the RSA in preventing school exclusions, youth, action, youth social action, and how to get involved in the global fellowship community, you can visit the rsa.org. Thank you all for watching and see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.